My name is Lauren Sawyer, and this is the second episode of A Curious Disputation. Chapter 1, Africa. When Augustine was born there in 354, the town of Tagaste, modern Souk Aharas in Algeria, had existed for 300 years. It was one of the many nuclei of egregious self-respect which the Romans had scattered all over North Africa. It called itself the most resplendent council of Tagaste. Since the first century BC, an economic miracle had transformed the hinterland of North Africa. Never again would prosperity be extended so effectively over so wide an area. By the third century AD, the high plains and valleys of the plateau, the old Numidia, where Augustine was born, had been planted with grain, crisscrossed with roads, settled with towns. Even farther south, beyond the Aures Mountains, a chain of forts guarded the boundary between intensive cultivation and its absence on the very edge of the Sahara. In that age of affluence, the inhabitants of one area, of Thistris, the modern El Dijem, had set up in the middle of the open plain an amphitheater almost the size of the Colosseum at Rome. But the most typical memorial of this boom period comes from an inscription at Timgad, a town far to the south of Tagaste, in what are now the desolate highlands of southern Algeria. The hunt, the baths, play and laughter, that's the life for me. By the fourth century, the original expansion had come to a sinister halt. Schemes for the building had stopped, the old public monuments had begun to crumble, shantytowns as chaotic as the winding lanes of the bazaars of an Arab town had come to press in around the checkerboard avenues of the old Roman cities. The wealth of Africa had moved away from its former centers. Instead, forests of olive trees had come to cover the hillsides of southern Numidia. Augustine could work all night in Africa, his lamp stocked with plentiful supplies of the coarse African oil. It was a comfort he would miss during his stay in Italy. This oil came from little men, from villages which lacked the swagger of the Roman towns. These sturdy planters, suspicious of the outside world, living in tight-knit communities whose habits had changed little since the prehistoric times, had become the arbiters of the prosperity of Africa. Augustine's Tagaste was perched on a plateau at the edge of this new Africa. It was administered from Carthage, but it had belonged to the old kingdom of Numidia. Our imaginations are dominated by the Africa of Carthage, the Africa of the Mediterranean coast. Augustine, however, grew up 200 miles from the sea and 2,000 feet above it, cut off from the Mediterranean by great forests of pine, by high valleys of corn and olives. As a boy, he could only imagine what the sea was like by looking into a glass of water. This was a world of farmers. A town was a symbol of civilization. 
it was not a unit distinct from the countryside. For all their pride, these little Romes would have had populations of only a few thousand, living off the land in exactly the same way as the present inhabitants of a Spanish pueblo or a South Italian township. It was on the land that the pleasures of life were sought by those who could afford them. Misery also went with the land. The misery of bent backs, near starvation, brutality like that of Tsarist Russia. A decade before Augustine's birth, southern Numidia had witnessed a peasant's revolt, tinged significantly with a combative form of Christianity. Augustine, a respectable member of a Roman town, was shielded from this misery. Indeed, as a schoolmaster and later as a bishop, he was one of a very small class of men who had no direct contact with the land. He could afford to talk nostalgically about gardening, to regard agriculture as bracing exercise. Tied to his desk in later years, he could only harbor distant memories of the long days in which he had roamed his countryside, hunting birds. To be a full member of a Roman town, Augustine had to be free and civilized. He did not have to be rich. His father, Patricius, was a poor man, a tenuis municeps, a burgess of slender means. Augustine will grow up in a hard, competitive world among proud and impoverished gentlefolk. A classical education was one of the only passports to success for such men, and he narrowly avoided losing even this. His early life will be overshadowed by the sacrifices his father made to give him this vital education. Patricius and his family had to go poorly dressed. He had to scrape. For one disastrous year, Augustine found himself condemned to give up his studies at a pleasant university town at Madaura, or Madauros, nor modern Madauroch, to run wild in primitive Tagaste. His cousins were less fortunate. They remained without a proper education and would have had to face the poverty and boredom of a narrow world of unleaded squireens. For men like Patricius and Romanianus did not think of themselves as Romans for nothing. It is most unlikely that Augustine spoke anything but Latin. Between the exclusively Latin culture into which he had been so successfully educated and any pre-existing native tradition, there stretched the immeasurable qualitative chasm, separating civilization from its absence. What was not Roman in Africa could only be thought of by such a man in Roman terms. Augustine will use the word Punic to describe the native dialects which most countrymen would have spoken exclusively and which many townsmen shared with Latin. This was not because such men spoke the language of the ancient Carthaginians. Rather, Augustine, an educated man, would instinctively apply this, the traditional, undifferentiated term, to any language spoken in North Africa that did not happen to be Latin. Yet, even the fully Latinized Africa of the 4th century remained somewhat alien. The opinion of the outside world was unanimous. Africa, in their opinion, was wasted on the Africans.
This is how Peter Brown's 500-page Augustan biography begins, with Africa. This great thinker of Western Christianity, who became the most important thinker of the Middle Ages, began his tenure as an outsider, attempting to assimilate to a dominant culture by attending the best Roman schools, speaking Latin, and studying classical philosophy. I don't want to downplay the power and authority Augustine had, especially compared to his parishioners, the townsfolk of Hippo, or the women in his life, his mom, his fiance, his concubine. But if we want to truly understand Augustine and his context, to make sense of his philosophies and theologies of war, the body, original sin, then we must take Peter Brown's lead and start here, in Tagaste, North Africa. Augustine was born in 354 CE to a pagan father and Christian mother. Tagaste was a town with sailors and merchants who spoke Greek, Roman colonists, and indigenous peasants, the Berbers. Augustine considered himself an African, himself at least half Berber, even as he spent his formative years in Italy, studying Latin texts. Christianity was a legitimized religion by this time. Forty-one years before Augustine was born was the Edict of Milan, which legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Twenty-nine years before he was born was the First Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council that affirmed the divinity of Jesus against Arius and Arianism. Much of Christianity remained unsettled at this time, too. By the time Augustine became Bishop of Hippo, African Christians had been dealing with the Donatist crisis for 80 years. The Donatists believed that if you were baptized by a bishop who turned out to be corrupt, then your baptism was illegitimate. Augustine consistently preached a universal gospel, meaning a bishop's sin did not affect your reception of the grace of God. This is the same stance he held against other sects and factions that preached an exclusive, elitist message. Like the Manichaeans who insisted, you must abide by a rigid sexual and dietary ethic to find union with the One. Or the Pelagians who taught that some people could do enough good deeds to earn God's grace. Augustine tried to convince the Donatists they were wrong, by writing treatises. This was his most powerful weapon, his Latin prose. But the Donatists, in return, were burning down churches, maiming and killing Catholic priests, and, in one incident, throwing a mixture of lime and vinegar into the eyes of a priest, blinding him. Fed up, Augustine asked the emperor for help, and in 412, Donatism became illegal. Some have called Augustine a tool of the empire for this. Others recognize Augustine's move as the plea of a desperate pastor, sick of seeing his people dying. The Roman Empire itself had weakened significantly during and before Augustine's lifetime. 24 years before he was born, Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire from its central location in Rome to Old Byzantium or Constantinople, in the east. 
After his death, the empire split and was ruled by Constantine's sons and their cousins. This split kingdom ultimately made it vulnerable to attack by outside barbarians while it dealt with internal wars and major cultural changes. In 410, late in Augustine's life, the Visigoths sacked the quote-unquote eternal city, Rome. A friend and contemporary of Augustine's, Jerome, had written, If Rome can perish, what can be safe? This world-changing incident prompted Augustine to write The City of God. Finally, in 430, the city of Hippo was invaded by the Vandals. Augustine died three months into the invasion. It's worth mentioning that even the so-called barbarians who invaded the Roman Empire were Christians. The Visigoths, for instance, were Arians, the sect of Christianity that was rejected at the First Council of Nicaea. I love this quote by Anthony Chabala Smith in his essay on Augustine and Empire. Readers of Augustine, both friend and foe, have habitually expected him to be a timeless figure, unconnected to any specific context. His traditional status as a doctor of the church, the far-reaching influence of his theology, and the authority with which his writings have been vested contribute to perennial difficulty in seeing him for who he was, a North African pastor struggling to proclaim the drama of redemption amid moral ambiguities and brutal realities of a disintegrating Roman Empire. Failure to contextualize him has allowed his thought to be pressed into the service of ends for which it was never suited, judged by values he could not have considered. Nowhere has this been truer than with his views on women, sexuality, and marriage. In part three of this podcast, we'll talk about Augustine's views on sexuality and marriage. But first, we need to take a bit of a detour into Augustine's journey with Neoplatonism, the rebirth of Platonic thought that emerged in the 3rd century CE. Part 2. Neoplatonism versus Manichaeanism. Augustine knew the Greek philosophers, Cicero, Plato, Aristotle, but he knew them as they are translated into Latin. Augustine was primarily influenced by Neoplatonism, a philosophical tradition that emerged in the 4th century by Plotinus, a defender of Platonic thought in a new era. It's worth noting that Plotinus, too, was African though he spent time in Persia and ultimately in Rome. To Augustine, Neoplatonism represented good philosophy as opposed to the bad philosophy of Manichaeanism. As Michael Mendelssohn suggests in his encyclopedia entry on Augustine, Augustine's Neoplatonic leanings should be read in relation to his anti-Manichaeanism, as if they go hand in hand. That is, Neoplatonism was ultimately what led him to the Catholic God and away from Manichaeanism, the rigid and ascetic sect of which he was a devotee. I've referenced Manichaeanism a few times already, 
but here's the lowdown. Manichaeanism was a dualistic and Gnostic Christian sect, later deemed a heresy, that was founded in the 3rd century in Persia. Mani, its founder, and his disciples taught that all matter was bad, and that the immaterial was good. Augustine was a middle-tier Manichaean, what was called an auditor. That allowed him to have sex as long as he used birth control. That is, he had to do whatever he could to avoid creating new matter in the form of a baby. The highest tier of Manichaean was the elect. They were to be celibate and maintain a strict diet, basically exhibit control over the material. When I say Manichaeanism was a dualistic religion, I mean that it presented things in binaries, the material versus immaterial, light versus dark, good versus evil. Some have argued that Augustine never really left this thinking behind, especially when it came to his sexual ethic. Others would argue that Augustine does indeed turn away from Manichaeanism, at least for a period of time, but then falls back into it when he debates the Pelagians later in life. Neoplatonism has some similar qualities to Manichaeanism, likely because of the synchronistic emergence and the ways in which Mani drew on multiple sources of inspiration, including Zoroastrianism, Christianity, Gnosticism, and, of course, Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism, for one, argued for the transcendence and immateriality of God and the superiority of the spirit over the body. But unlike Manichaeans, Neoplatonists held that evil was not an equal and opposite of good. Evil was the absence of good or the furthest thing from good. Do you hear that subtle distinction? To draw on last week's podcast, Augustine, the Neoplatonist, believed that what we experience in the sensible world are images of the ideal that exist in the mind of God. Like what Diggory points out in The Last Battle, the old Narnia was just a shadow of the new Narnia experienced on the other side of the door. Augustine ultimately believed that the Christian God was compatible with the supreme good of the Neoplatonists. This helped him get to the Garden of Milan, so to speak, where he had his conversion experience. How I burned, my God, how I burned to fly back from these earthly places to you, even though I didn't know what you would do with me. But wisdom is with you. The Greek name philosophia means love of wisdom. And this love set me on fire through Cicero's treatise. There are those who debauch others through philosophy, using that great and persuasive and respectable word to gloss over and whitewash whatever they do wrong. And in this book are singled out and censured nearly all of those who, in Cicero's time and before, were in this category. This book lays out that rescuing instruction from your spirit through your dutiful and reverent slave, Paul, quote, Look for anyone who wants to trick you through philosophy and lead you meaninglessly astray, according to received human wisdom and according to this material universe and not according to Christ, because in him there lives the entire fullness of what is holy in physical form. At that time, as you know, light of my heart, 
I had no knowledge yet of this passage from the Apostles' writings. Yet I was delighted by one thing in Cicero's urgings. I was supposed to conceive an affection for and seek out and grasp and hold and embrace for all I was worth, not this or that system, but philosophy herself, whatever she was. That's why his words instilled such a thrill in me, why such a flame flared up. And there was a single thing to repel this great conflagration. Christ's name wasn't in that work. This name, according to your mercy, Master, this name of my Savior, your Son, had been in my mother's milk itself. My infant heart had reverently drunk that name in and kept it deep within me. And without it, whatever I read, however studied and polished it was, and however much of the truth it told otherwise, couldn't ravish me altogether. Part 3, Let's Talk About Sex, Baby When I talked to Desmond last episode, you heard how excited he got talking about his research. Now it's my turn. I've spent years with Augustine, starting in Chile's Theology 1 class my second year at the Seattle School. I created a zine about Augustine's view on sexuality and marriage that laid important groundwork for my integrative project on his Theology of Desire. My IP was a big ol' mess, but it led me to continue to teach and write and ask questions about the foundations for my faith, Western Christianity, evangelicalism for most of my life, that could be traced back to this one thinker. Before this sounds too much like just some wholesome academic project for me, I should say two things. One, part of my obsession with Augustine, if we can call it that, came because everyone in my 2012 Seattle School cohort seemed to hate him. They were tempted by the wiles of one Pelagius and tried to dunk on Augustine at any moment. I didn't have the historical hang-ups with Augustine that some of my classmates did, especially those growing up in Reformed traditions. And frankly, it just annoyed me that someone who had saint before his name could be dismissed that easily. So I pulled up a chair and spent some time with Augustine hoping to find that complicated, nuanced, 4th century dude apart from the Augustinian tradition that followed him. Second, I think about desire a lot. It's not just an academic pursuit, but the way I order my life. And if you want to talk about desire and God and eros and sex and Jesus and bodies, you need to talk about Augustine. So I did, and I do. So here I want to outline my understanding of Augustine's philosophy or ethics or theology of desire that I've come to understand from all the reading and feeling and head-scratching that I've done over the years. I'm going to do this by way of story. I do this in part because this is how I've come to understand complicated ideas, through story. And I also want to suggest that even if we have qualms with Augustine's ideas, and trust me, I do too, there are some applicable truths to our world today. 
The story I want to draw on is a favorite movie of mine, Dan in Real Life. It's a 2007 film starring Steve Carell about a widower who falls in love with his brother's girlfriend, Marie. Dan, played by Carell, and his three girls travel to Rhode Island for a family reunion. When Dan is alone in town grabbing a newspaper, he runs into Marie, a woman he is completely captivated by. Indeed, she's the first woman he's fallen for since his wife died. Dan and Marie share a special moment together before they part ways. Dan reaches the family cottage filled with glee, only to realize in a short matter of time that the woman he fell for was dating his playboy brother, Mitch. Hey. Hey. <laughs> What's wrong? Nobody. I mean, nothing. <laughs> Daddy's back. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Dude, you're right. What? Yeah. No. 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 I'm good. Really? Good. Yeah. You don't. You don't seem good. Well, it was the strangest thing. I. Uh... Wow. Wow. What? <sighs> You've got a call. Oh, he just left her. He's probably worried it's too soon. Oh, it's never too soon, especially for somebody his age. <laughs> Amy, Dan met someone. He met someone? Dan met someone. Hey, oh, how, how soon till he can call? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't know. I haven't been single for years. Me neither. Oh, my God. Uncle Dan met Uncle Dan met a honey. You know what? Let's ask him. What, what does she look like? Um... What's the, the question? This is my brother, Dan, and uh, he needs your advice. He met some hottie downtown, <laughs> and um, she's a little shell-shocked. Yeah, wouldn't you be? Uh, Mitch neglects to mention that in their little weekend away, she's going to meet our entire family. <laughs> I don't want to scare her off. Let's go, everybody. Let's go. Congratulations. So, Annie? It's Anne-Marie. Um, Mitch calls me Annie, but uh, I'm Marie everywhere else. Yeah, I have two Marys and uh, Martha in my exercise class, so I didn't want to confuse people. No, that that would be not good. I, I, I prefer Marie. Augustine's Theology and Ethics of Desire can be summarized simply as rightly desiring the right things. We call this ordered desire. Part A, desiring the wrong things. Much of the Confessions explores Augustine's experience desiring wrong things. In his mind, those wrong things were, say, prestige as a teacher or rhetorician, or, more importantly, sex for non-procreative purposes. It's easy to read Augustine as a sex addict. The guy writes about it all the time, as if he cannot get it off his mind. In the movie, Dan in Real Life, Dan desires the wrong person, Marie, who's dating his brother. It's not that Marie herself is wrong. I mean, Julia Binoche is gorgeous and charming, but contextually, because she is in a relationship and because Dan cares about his brother and the rest of his family, it's the wrong object of desire for him. But he took a bus here. He has relatives in 
Boston. Dad. Dad, he loves me. Okay. You don't have to worry. When it comes to sex, Marty is the one who wants to wait. What about that sentence is supposed to give me comfort? Dad, I love him. Marty. I love him. Oh. I love him. I love him. I love him. No, you don't. What we have is true love. And just because you don't have it doesn't mean you have to punish us. Infatuation is not love. Sexual attraction is not love. You don't understand. I don't understand. No. You don't even understand that you don't understand. What don't I understand, Kara? Please, help me out. What is it? It's frustrating you can't be with this person? That, that there's something keeping you apart? That there's something about this person you really connect with? And whenever you're near this person, you don't know what to say, and you say everything that's in your mind and in your heart, and you know that if you could just be together, that this person would help you become the best possible version of yourself. So Marty can stay. In Neoplatonic thought, the object of one's desire affects one's character. So by desiring the wrong object of affection, you are morally harming yourself. Augustine thought that you desired the wrong things because you had a disordered will. That is, you let your body do the desiring for you, not the will or the mind. Humans were prone to this disordered thinking because of original sin. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned because he submitted to Eve and took the fruit that she offered him. This mirrored the same action of a will or mind, a human's maleness, submitting to the body, a human's femaleness. Whenever the will gives into the body, a person reenacts Adam's sin. Augustine is pretty blunt about this. If a man gets an erection when he is not about to have marital procreative sex, his body is disobeying him. He talks about this in reverse, too. If a man is trying to have marital procreative sex, but he can't get an erection, this is also his body disobeying him. This is incredibly, obviously, androcentric, phallocentric, quite literally. Augustine didn't have a lot of female confidants to test his theories out on, but this is the lens Augustine saw the world through. It was consistent with his contemporaries and even at points more progressive. Part B, wrongly desiring. Augustine argues that disordered desire, what he calls concupiscence or cupiditas, begins in infancy with a baby grasping for milk or a toy or her mother. She throws her body into a fit to get what she wants. Augustine calls this sin. In fact, Augustine argues that babies develop speech precisely so they can better articulate their desires. The infant's desire for milk is not bad in itself. Indeed, it's necessary for her to live. Rather, the problem Augustine identifies is how those objects are being pursued. This is the language of concupiscence or lust. It's a compulsive pursuit to borrow language from Margaret Miles. In On Continence, 
an anti-Manichaean treatise, Augustine critiques the Manichaeans' motivations for practicing chastity. He calls it strange continence, that the Manichaeans would abstain from sex out of a hatred for the body. In The City of God, he similarly calls it a sin to only abstain from something that God prohibits in fear of punishment. Toward the end of the film, Marie breaks things off with Mitch. She drives into town, and Dan sneaks off to meet her. The object of his affection now is appropriate. They're both single and interested in each other. And yet, how Dan pursues this relationship, and in turn how Marie returns his affection, is unkind. He snubs his youngest daughter and seeks no counsel from Mitch before sneaking off on this midday tryst. Eventually, they're caught kissing in a bowling alley. What are we doing? <laughs> it may be wrong. Yes. But there's a certain rightness to our wrongness, I think. You think uh, we've got to think? I mean, you girls, and how do we? I mean, they're extraordinary. And... Where? I think this is all premature. We don't even know if you can bowl. Two hours ago, we broke up two hours ago. I know, I know, I know, just, okay. Marie, I thought that you left. She did, she left, but she just didn't get very far. What? I, I can, I can, I can explain this. Yeah, let him explain. Okay, remember the woman at the bookstore? Here she is. You told me to go after her, and I didn't. It, it wasn't Kathy, Mitch. I know how this works. Mitch, I also know how it feels. Was this feel you oh, oh, Part C. Brightly desiring the right things. 
the trajectory of Augustine's theology and ethics of desire is toward rest or satisfaction in God. God is the only one who can bring endless and profound pleasure. In Augustine's eschatological imagination at the resurrection of the body, the relationship between the will and body are ordered once again. In paradise, humans will be able to control their genitals via their will. Augustine compares this to wiggling the ears. In City of God, Book 22, Augustine calls God the end of all desires. This plays out in the structure of confessions as well. Several scholars, including Peter Brown and Sarah Rudin, point to the last four chapters of confessions as the culmination of Augustine's thesis introduced in Book 1, Chapter 1. Throughout the text, Augustine tries to right the wrongs of his disordered desire by committing to chastity an act that preceded his conversion to Christianity and went beyond the expectations for a bishop of his day. He would always struggle with sexual desire or other disordered desires until he found rest in God in eternity. The movie ends with rightly ordered desire. Dan tries one last time to suppress and punish his desire by grounding himself for life but his girls are wise enough to know that that is not healthy desire. As Dan apologizes to them for lying and being overly protective, they bless him by freeing him to pursue his desire for Marie. Ultimately, for Dan, rightly desiring the right thing meant first reconciling with his family and letting go of the fear and control that ordered his life up until this moment. I really messed up. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did, Mom. What I did to Lily. Don't forget Madge. Yeah. Those newspaper people. Admittedly, not a good day for you. If I just stay focused on being their dad. Oh, please. You know, love is messy. I should know better. I hurt my kids. Go unhurt them. No, honey, you've made some mistakes. Danny. So many. Falling for Marie wasn't one of them. Girls, I'd like to talk to Lily alone, if I could. So here is what I'm going to do. I am grounding myself for life. I'm sticking with you. I am going to be with you. You're with us every day. I'm not going anywhere. 
See, I got a little confused with Marie, but that is over, okay? I kind of lost my head, got a little stupid because I love her. That's, that's not, I don't love her. That's not what I meant. I mean, how could I love her? I've only known her. Three days. <laughs> yeah. And how can you know in three days? I don't know. Yes, I do. I love her. 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 Then go get her. You so prefer her to you? Part 4, Epilogue I want to end this week's podcast with a story. Not about Augustine or his ideas, but about his biographer, Peter Brown. Brown first published that giant Augustine biography in 1967. Between that time and the second edition, which was published in the year 2000, something unexpected happened. More of Augustine's manuscripts were uncovered. The Dolbo Sermons in 1990 and the Divjak Letters in 1975. If you ever come across a writing of Augustine's with an asterisk next to it, it's one of these texts. The sermons were from Augustine as a young preacher, in his 40s. The letters were of an old bishop in the last decades of his life. They showed a very different Augustine. Peter writes in his epilogue, quote, It is not the voice of Augustine the theologian or of Augustine the thinker. Rather, it is the living voice of Augustine the bishop, caught in turns at the most intimate and at its most routine. In sermons preserved as they were preached by stenographers, we can literally catch the voice of Augustine as he spoke face to face with Catholic congregations in the first decade of his episcopate. Almost 20 years later, in the Divjak letters, we find Augustine, now an old bishop, caught up in the seemingly endless day-to-day business of the Catholic Church in Africa. End quote. One of my favorite examples of this comes from a letter Augustine wrote to a virgin named Sapita. Sapita's brother just died and she's grieving. In her grief, she sends a tunic she had made, asking Augustine that he wear it. Now Augustine had previously written, quote, let no one give me a present of clothing, whether linen or tunic or any other article of dress, 
except as a gift to be used in common by my brother and myself. I tell you, an expensive robe would embarrass me. It would not suit my profession nor my principles." So you might expect that Augustine would say in his letter to Sapita that he cannot wear the tunic. Or perhaps he would just not mention the tunic, or he would do what we typically do when we receive a gift that we do not like. Thank you, it's so pretty. I'm afraid to even take it out of its box. But this is not what Augustine does. He writes a very kind, a very pastoral and intimate letter back to Sapita. Quote, The gift prepared by the just and pious industry of your own hands and kindly presented by you to me, I have accepted, lest I should increase the grief of the one who needs, as I perceive, much rather to be comforted by me. Whatever be the kind and degree of consolation which you may feel this to yield, I have not refused it to your affection for your brother. The tunic which you have sent I have accordingly accepted, and I have already begun to wear it before writing this to you. Peter Brown continues, It is precisely this unusual combination of intimacy and routine that has come as a surprise to me. It has led me to rethink the image of Augustine the Bishop that my biography communicated in many places. Put briefly, I have found the Augustine of the Dolbo sermons and the Dibjak letters to be considerably less the authoritarian, stern figure than my reading of the evidence available to me in the 1960s has led me to suspect. End quote. I hope this for all of us. May the passage of time, more education, more curiosity, or new evidence bring us to different conclusions about the scholars we read. May we have more compassion when compassion is called for, and more criticism and doubt when we have put scholars unfairly on pedestals. thanks to Emile Wayne for the reading at the top of the show. Wow, just wow. Emile is a brilliant philosopher in their own right. I've put a link to their website in the show notes. The theme music is by Alex Morakovich. This has been a curious disputation. See you next week.